0: Our reading this morning is from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. O great the forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. May God bless his word. You may be seated.
1: We're going to be looking at James chapter 3 this morning and if you're doing a read-through of the New Testament and you go through, um, you go through the Gospels and the book of Acts and you read about the life of Jesus and the beginning of the church and then afterwards uh, you start reading into Paul's epistles and his letters and you get this rich theology that Paul gives of the cross and, and, and of resurrection And then you keep going, you get to the book of Hebrews, and there's this great theology of the Old Covenant and how it connects to the New Covenant, and you keep reading, and you you finish Hebrews, and then you come to James. You might think when you start looking at James, the book doesn't exactly really belong in the New Testament. And if you've ever had that thought, well, you're, you're in good company, no one less than the great reformer Martin Luther said that St. James's epistle is really a right strawy epistle compared to these others. And he was talking about Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, 1 John, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Well, Luther and those who have criticized James's epistle as something maybe that shouldn't be in the New Testament are, in fact, and I don't say this often about Martin Luther, but they're wrong. David Mathis explains in response to this, James clearly does not lay out any extended exposition of Jesus' person or work, like Paul does in Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians. That certainly is true. James's short epistle is a call to Christian action, to live out. The gospel we profess not just believing it and that is what really makes James a downright practical book for us and I can't think of a better practical applicable message for us and one that's been around throughout the ages than the one that James gives us here in James chapter 3 verses 1 to 12 and that's where we're going to be looking this morning The 20th century British philosopher J.L. Austin emphasized words and the power of words in his philosophy. He brought to light the fact that there's no such thing as an empty word. In other words, a word that's just kind of spoken out there, but, but rather words, they perform actions. What he called a speech act. And I don't want to bore you with the details of Austin's philosophy this morning. As a matter of fact, I recognize as soon as I say the word philosophy, some of you um, are starting to fall asleep and checking out. So I want to to sum it up for you this way. Everyone in here has probably heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And everyone in here who has lived for any amount of time on this earth knows that that saying is a lie. I'm not sure where the saying came from, but I am sure of this. It didn't come from Scripture. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in James chapter 3. In our passage today, James teaches us that our words carry great weight and therefore a great danger. Beware of your words. Our words carry a great weight and therefore a great danger. Beware of your Of your words. And the way we're going to look at this passage this morning is we're going to look at it through the way James kind of structures it through three potentialities. James talks about the tongue, the organ that's used to speak words, and the potentialities of the tongue. And he's going to talk about three. The first, the power potentiality of the tongue. And then the evil potentiality of the tongue. And then finally, he's going to show us the hypocritical potentiality of the tongue. So let's start this morning uh, by looking at our passage and looking at the power potentiality of this of the tongue, if you'll look with me. James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James here turns his attention to those who would desire to be teachers, in particular those uh, who would want to teach in the church, who would want to teach, who would want to preach. And the reason James talks about this and the way he does is it's pretty simple. In that day and time, a teacher in the church was somebody who they were accorded this great respect. In particular, the Jewish churches that, that James is speaking to, he's writing to in this epistle. Where in the Jewish tradition, the scribes and the rabbis of that age, they weren't just teachers. They were community leaders. And so here in these churches, there might be people who are clamoring for a teaching position, right? I mean at this point early Christianity the pool's a little bit small. It's easier to be a big fish in a small pond and what James says is he warns them teaching is not for everybody. Teaching and preaching are a unique calling and it's one that comes with weightier expectations. Uh, one thinks of God's words to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3. God tells Ezekiel, he, he gives him his calling. He says, you're going to go, and your calling is essentially going to be one of judgment. You're going to speak a word of judgment to the Israelites, the nation of Israel living in apostasy at that time. And if Ezekiel goes and he warns the Israelites of the judgment that was to come for their disobedience, and then they ignored that warning, well, the judgment that would come, that would be on them. But if Ezekiel doesn't follow through, and he chooses whether it be out of fear, whether it be out of wanting to please man, whatever reason it could be, he chooses not to warn them and not to give them the words that God has given him. And they continue in their disobedience and their apostasy. To quote the text, his blood, talking about Israel, his blood I will require at your hand. See, teaching bears weight, this Speaking, this teaching, speaking the word of God. It's not for everyone. And why not? Well, James goes on to explain in verse 2. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. In other words, be careful if you're going to teach because teaching involves using a lot of words, and words are particularly dangerous. One of James's messages in this epistle, if we go back to chapter 2, is that faith without works is dead. Now, he, James is not saying, and I think this is where maybe Luther and some others, they don't like James necessarily. It, it kind of hits us the wrong way if we're honest when we read this. He's not saying that we're saved by our works. But what he's saying, rather, is that saving faith always results in good works. It shows itself in good works, in a changed life, as part of being a new creation. So the sign of spiritual maturity, it's not being able to give every answer to any theological question or citing theologians or even Bible verses. It's not in what church you go to or how reformed you are or what your background is. Though those kinds of things can help us. No, the sign of spiritual maturity with James is it's in the way you live your life. And for James, nothing is a greater signpost for the way you live your life than how you manage your words. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. He takes it down to our words. This is just echoing the teachings of Jesus, and, and that's something that James actually does quite frequently. You probably find more references to the teaching of Jesus in the book of James than any other book in the New Testament. Matthew fifteen seventeen, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, passes into the stomach, is expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart? And this defiles a person. James says it differently. He says it in the positive. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect person, able to bridle his whole body. And then he goes on to give two analogies. Verse 3, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, I, I've always been fascinated with horses. I, I don't know how to ride horses. I don't really know much about them. I've only been around a few of my life. PC, you, you may know how to ride a horse. Uh, actually, whenever you describe your uh, vacations or your hunting trips out west to me, I always picture you on horseback. Don't tell me if it's not true because I like having that picture in my head, actually. <laughs> but... Um, but, but Horses, they've always fascinated me. And the reason they fascinated me is because I thought, well, doesn't that thing know that it doesn't need to let us ride on its back? I mean, look at that thing. Doesn't he know that he doesn't need to pull this cart? He weighs more than we do. He's stronger than we are. With a kick of its legs, we could be done. And yet we can control this several hundred pound muscular animal with a tiny bit in its mouth, and we can guide it where we want it to go. Or a very large ship, the way a ship, it's, it's controlled by a rudder. Now, if you look at ships, my wife is actually from a shipbuilding town. If you look at the construction of these giant ships, the rudder isn't very, very small. It's huge. But in comparison to the size of that ship, it doesn't take much to guide that thing. In verse 5, so the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The idea that James is saying boasting here, it's not a negative boasting, like bragging, uh, like like we see Paul talking about boasting. All he's saying here is, look, the tongue, like a bit in the mouth of the horse or a rudder on a ship, it can do some really great things for how small it is. Like a horse or like a ship, we as humans, both body and soul are complex, powerful creations. And yet, so much of who we are and so much of what we do is controlled by the tongues, by the tongue, by the words that we say. And that's the power potentiality of the tongue. This hit me about a year ago. This really came home to me uh, a year ago. I, I was at the time I was meeting with two other men that live uh, that, that were in the city where we live, and we would meet for Saturday mornings uh, for Bible study and. Uh, accountability and prayer, and we at the time we were going through the book of James, and we came to this passage on a Saturday morning. We we got to James chapter three, and we start looking at the passage, and it just so happened um, that on that particular Saturday, I was going to take my son uh, to lunch that day. It was going to be just the two of us. It had been a busy couple of weeks. I wanted to get some time just one on one with him, and so we were going to go to lunch that day. And as we read this passage, and I got to these verses it hit me, God, God hit me with this, that just in just two hours from now, I'm going to be sitting down to lunch with my son. At the, at the time, he was, he was my four-year-old son. And if I would so choose, just with my words, I could make him feel loved, feel important. I could affirm him. And if I would so choose, just with my words, I could create a wound in his heart that might last for the remainder of his life, in two hours, just with my words, just in the words that I speak, I have the power to do that. In the culture where we live, it's not very common to tell your child that you love them. Actually, most of the people who I work with, they've never heard those words uh, from their parents. And those that did hear those words can recall the time and place that they heard it, typically. That's the power of words. Counseling offices are filled with people who are dealing with the wounds of words that were spoken in their childhood, ruining their lives 30, 40, 50 years later. And I guarantee that there are some in here today who struggle daily with something that was said to you years ago. James here offers us a warning, and it's not only to teachers, it's really to all of us. How have you used your words this week? Are you loose with your tongue? I don't mean saying curse words. I mean, things like, do you comment in a negative way on your wife's appearance? Do you use your words to tear down your husband, to manipulate others? Do you wound your children with what you say? Those are the kind of questions that we as believers need to be asking, because the reality is these things are far worse than any tirade of profanity that's ever been unleashed in a movie. Or to put it another way, as James would put it, where are you in your spiritual maturity? You see, the problem is that as people in a sin-stained world, we still struggle with sin. Even as Christians, we're still fighting sin. And so in the same way that the tongue is a sign of our maturity, it's also a sign of the evil that lurks inside of us as well. That's still, that we're still fighting off, that evil in our hearts that we're, we're having to fight all the time. Often the tongue is a measure of that. Because just as the tongue carries a power potentiality, it also carries an evil potentiality. Let's keep looking. The second half of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Easy to say here, James is not very optimistic about the tongue. In the same way that that a, a tiny spark can set ablaze an entire forest, the tongue can do incredible damage. And we've seen this. We've seen this throughout history. History full of dangerous men who have been given incredible power because of their oratorical skills. It was the great oratorical skills of Adolf Hitler that gave him rise, that resulted in a world war, the murder of millions, as an example. Verse 7. For every kind of beast, of bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Here James is taking us back to the created order, back to Genesis 1 uh when when god gives he creates man he blesses him he gives him dominion over all of creation and it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about with a horse i mean think think about how we can tame something that can outrun us that is stronger than us it's faster than us to the point that it would submit to letting us to letting us ride on its back wherever we want it to take us we can do that as humans and yet we still can't control our tongues. They are a restless evil, James says. A restless evil. Think about that. that. That's scary to think of. It just can't wait to do something bad, right? I mean, think about like a toddler. Add sugar. Take away sleep. Put them in a room full of breakables, right? I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing we're talking about here. The tongue is dangerous, And I I think as a a peacemaking church, as a church that uh, that wants to emphasize peacemaking, it's part of our culture as a church, we really can't pay attention to this enough. Because when it comes to peacemaking, whether that be within the church, whether that be within our families, whether that be on an international scale, when it comes to peacemaking, is there anything that hinders peacemaking more than the tongue? I would venture a guess not. And I would add in our digital age of social media, I I believe this extends to what you type and what you text as well. I, I would venture as far to say that most of our interpersonal conflict, most of the struggles that we have with other people involve something that was said. I mean, how many of you married folks in here have been to a point in an argument with your spouse when You could walk away, you could end the argument, but you just can't let it go until you get one last word, one last chance to defend yourself, to make sure your argument's clear, one more sarcastic slash, one more word to explain yourself. You can't help it. And so the argument just perpetuates. How many of you, in a moment of frustration, have lost patience with your child and said something like, "What are you thinking? What is wrong with you? This is what what lurks inside of us this is what's waiting. We were recently in Thailand, and um, we were there with some friends, and he was uh, our friend was recommending a snake show to us um, our he, he had taken his family to see this snake show. Now, we didn't go see it because my wife is terrified of snakes. We're never going to go to a snake show. Um, but he was telling me about it. It sounded really cool to me, at least. At this show, he said they, they had this bag, and they, they take the bag, and they pull it off, and there's a king cobra, like right on the stage there. I hope I'm not giving too many nightmares here. There's this king cobra, and that thing, he said it's like 10 feet long. And some guy with the title of the world's worst job has to pick that thing up by the head and he takes a glass vial and he puts its mouth up to the vial and you can see the poison flowing into the vial from the cobra's mouth. And they're going to take that poison. They use it for making anti-venom for people who get bit by cobras in Thailand. But the interesting thing about that is that that snake doesn't really just go around spitting venom all day. That's not really what he does. Yet the potential is there to kill a man in one bite if it needs to use it. And in the same way, the tongue, it's got this great power potential that we just talked about, making it all the more dangerous in the mouth of a sinner because of this evil potential that it has. As a matter of fact, it's kind of worse than that cobra is because it's, All of us in here may have experienced before, that cobra controls his venom a lot better than we tend to control our tongues. Beware of your words. And part of the tongue's evil, the evil of the tongue, is that it doesn't necessarily have to be consistent. Right, So there's the power potentiality of the tongue. There's the evil potentiality of the tongue. And then James is going to finish by talking about the hypocritical potentiality of the tongue. The hypocritical potentiality of the tongue. Now James, he doesn't like hypocrisy. He doesn't like double-sidedness. In chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, he talks about a man who has, says he has faith, but his works don't show it. In other words, his life looks completely different than what, his, what he proclaims with his mouth. And here he's going to continue that theme, if you'll look with me, in verse 9. He says, with it, talking about the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who were made in the likeness of God. One commentator explains that when he says, when James says he, we curse people here, it's not to say you're, it's, he's not saying you're saying a curse word to someone. Essentially in this context, what James is talking about, when you curse someone, you're wishing them to be cut off from God. To, on the one hand, blessing God, right? This is what we're made to do, to praise God. On the other hand, cursing people, wishing them to be cut off from God. And what does James say about this in verse 10? My brothers, these things ought not be so. This kind of thing shouldn't exist. How dare we bless God at the same time that we're cursing people who were made in the likeness of God. And James here, he takes us back to Genesis 1 again. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when God creates man. It says uh, that God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see, when God created man, he creates him in the image and the likeness of God. Now, there's some debate in theology today over what exactly is involved in being created in the image of God. There's different opinions on that. Um, And what what I would think at least one part of it One part of it when you look uh, at the Old Testament, when you look at the context, and I don't think this is the whole of it, but I certainly think this is one part, is that when Moses wrote Genesis, he was actually using common language when he talked about man being created in the image of God. This is language that was often used in other texts uh, for a king, a king of a tribe. They didn't have nation states back then like we think of them today, but a king of essentially a people group or a tribe was they often said they were in the image of God, created in the image of whatever deity that tribe would worship. So when Moses wrote Genesis, he's using this common language. And when Moses writes that man was made in the image of God, that's what he's referring to. Only the thing about Moses, it's an apologetic, because what Moses is saying is, your gods don't have the power of our God, who is the creator God. He is the God. Right, So maybe your God is a God, you think of this tribe, our God created everything that is, and the God of Israel is the God of all that is. He is God. He's the sovereign creator of everything. And so for man to be made in God's image, there's this universality here. For man to be made in God's image, the idea is that man is put in this position as a kingly steward of the rest of creation, a representative of God to creation. That's why it goes on to say in Genesis 1, 26, that man is to have dominion. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. Man is the one made in God's image is to be a kingly steward over the king's creation, sort of like a sub-regent for God, so that when we bless God, taking it back to the passage, when we bless God out of one side of our mouth and we curse man who's made in the likeness of God out of the other side of our mouths, we're cursing the kingly representative of God. It doesn't make sense. It's almost the same as as cursing God himself. You're cursing his kingly representative. It's sort of hypocrisy. It, It has no place in the church today. That's what James is saying here. There's no place for that. Don't praise God and then curse man. And yet we continue to fight this sort of thing. You come to church on a Sunday. You sing praises to God. You greet your brothers and sisters. And then on Monday you're complaining about them or breaking fellowship with them by gossiping it makes no sense to praise God and then to turn around and use your tongue to say something hurtful about your brother and sister. He continues, from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not be so. Verse 11, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can, uh, does a, I lost my place here. Sorry, can a fig tree, my brother, produce olives or a grapevine, produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. We have to remember that this was written in the Middle East and in that environment, water means life, right? Springs in the desert, they're everything. So here James, he contrasts a double-sided tongue to some good things like a spring, figs, grapes, olives, life-giving things, and then something that's bad, a salt pond. The meaning here is that whether fresh or salty, at least these things are one or the other. Worse than that, is the double-sided tongue. So if you're going to curse men, don't praise God. It's better just to let evil be evil. And if you're going to praise God, don't curse men. There's a significant danger for hypocrisy in this way with the tongue. You see, James Although he specifically starts by speaking to those who want to be teachers in the church, what he says, really, it expands to to all of us. It applies to everybody. And the interesting thing here is when we really look at this passage, he's not really giving us a warning. He's just more stating facts about the tongue. He's just talking about the evils and the difficulties of controlling our tongue, the great potential for harm that we have with our words. Want to be perfect? Perfectly control your tongue. But no human can tame the tongue. Nobody can do that. You today have a restless evil in your body ready to start fires itself already set on fire by hell. And I think each one of us in here can probably reflect on things that we have said whether that be in an argument with someone, whether it's a sarcastic side comment, maybe it's something that we've said behind someone's back, things that we've said that have hurt others, that have created wounds, friendships that have ended, feelings that are hurt, sins that remain unforgiven, things that we look back on with regret. James here, he speaks to something that's universal to all of us, really. And it's something that makes us tremble, or at least it should make us tremble, at the thought of the power of our words. In reality, if we just look at these verses by themselves, there doesn't really seem to be a lot of hope here. Because nobody contain the tongue and all this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this that words are powerful words they're not just words not just spoken entities that just fall dead but words do things when we speak words they perform actions a speech act and in reality it's been that way all the way back to and God said and it was so The speech, and God said, and the action that it produced, and it was so. Those perfect words that resulted in perfect action, good things, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was all very good. So words have great power, but for us as humans, the problem is that nobody contain the tongue nobody that is save one when John in his gospel tells us in John 1 that there was a word in the beginning a word who was with God a word who was God the word through whom all things were made he's referring back to the creative speech act of God That word was the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. And in becoming flesh, becoming human, Christ went on to live a life that, he could, that, that we couldn't live. Only he could live. We couldn't do it. A life of perfect obedience to his father. And that means that Jesus, against all odds, tamed his tongue when we couldn't. He didn't speak a false word. What he said, he meant. He knew when to speak and when to hold his tongue. And he did that all the way to the cross. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Peter will go on to write about Jesus in 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges, judges justly. Jesus obeys all the way to the cross. And why is it that Jesus obeys like this, taming his tongue to the end? Peter continues he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see, Jesus tamed his tongue all the way to the cross so that we might be healed from the sin. And the shame that are caused by the evil that has come from our tongues. I find it really interesting here that words are so powerful that even when they're kept, they perform an action. In Christ's silence and affliction, he acted on our behalf. And what's the result of that? That we've returned To the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We've returned to God, the one who can teach us to tame the tongue, the one who can teach us to love our brothers and sisters. So, when it seems here that there's no hope, when we look at the words of James and we think, where's the hope? There's hope in Jesus. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the blood of Christ, in his resurrection, in our new life, we can fight the sinful tendencies of the tongue. Well, what does that mean? Well, maybe you're here today and you do deal with regret for something that you've said. Something you've said that hurt someone. Maybe it was something you said just this morning to somebody in your family. And you think back on it and you hate it came out of your mouth. There's forgiveness available in Jesus who kept his silence when we couldn't. You can experience that forgiveness. You can seek the forgiveness of those you've hurt in Christ. Or maybe for one reason or another, it's a little bit deeper than that. Maybe you're unable to ask for that forgiveness from somebody who you've hurt. Uh, Maybe you think you don't understand. I don't know how to reach out to this person. This is something that happened years ago that I said, and I just regret it to this day. I don't know how to reach out. I don't know how to get in touch with this person. Maybe it's somebody that's that's already passed away. And you deal with that regret. If that's you this morning, no. Jesus controlled his tongue all the way to the cross. He died for your sins. You are not beyond the forgiveness of Christ this morning. There is forgiveness and healing in him. The shepherd and the overseer of our souls holds out his mercy for us. Or maybe you're here today and and you can't say that you you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Maybe you haven't experienced the healing that's available in Christ and you desire that healing. And if that's you today and you want to learn more about what that means, what does it mean? to obey Christ? What does it mean to come uh, to, to experience that healing and that forgiveness that's available in him? I would love to talk with you. Pastor Kurt would love to talk with you. The person who you came with would love to share more with you about that because there's hope for you. You can experience forgiveness and healing. You can experience a new life where you can make your words act for good. But this, this can't happen apart from the new life in Jesus. Who can tame the tongue? Only through the gospel of Christ do we have hope to live that way.